Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first podcast coming to you from Fisherman's Post. My name is Gary Hurley, owner, publisher of Fisherman's Post newspaper. Since 2003, we've been doing newspapers, fishing reports, started doing fishing tournaments, moved into fishing schools, and I think this podcast is a natural extension of our fishing schools. We've long sought to inform, try to help people with how to. Our goal has been to help people catch more fish more often. And hopefully this podcast, again, is just an extension of that. Very excited to be coming to you with this today. And this podcast is made possible by a partnership with Billy Thorpe of Thorpe Creative. Billy, thanks for joining us. Gary, thanks for having me, man. Awesome to be on the show. Awesome to, uh, to yeah, to be collaborating, to do, you know, do another outdoor podcast. Super excited. And yeah, man, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, man, looking forward to it, looking to see how this thing plays out. And uh, we thought we would start timely. We're here in early spring, and we have uh, Captain Tim DeSano. Captain Tim DeSano is Tideline Charters, and he's down in South Brunswick County. That's where he grew up. Um, fishes a lot out of Sunset Beach, out of the Holden Beach area. I got a, a brief bio. I'm going to tell you that he specializes in light tackle fishing, for inshore species of red drum, trout, and flounder, working the inshore waters from Ocean Isle to Little River. Um, I don't need to read to tell you that he's now worked with Fisherman's Post for a couple of years doing fishing reports. He's now worked with Fisherman's Post for a couple of years doing the fishing schools. He is a great communicator. He loves his craft. He's constantly working on his craft, and so he seemed like a natural invite for this first episode. Tim, thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Gary, man. Thanks for having me. Um, you, Billy, both, you know, I listen to podcasts regularly. Um, love everything that we get to do when, you know, when you guys call and between the schools, the tournaments, everything, you know, we stay involved in all of it. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully a long future with the Fisherman's Post podcast. Yeah, man, I, I think I think it's going to be a hit. I think people are going to really respond <laughs> to what we're doing here. And just like when I'm talking to the crowd at the fishing schools, I say, you know, my position at Fisherman's Post, I'm friends, I'm, I know a lot of the captains, so the advantage that I get is I get to handpick people I think are good at teaching, are good at communicating, not just a good fisherman, you know, but fit this medium well. And so we brought Tim on, he's easy to talk to, a wealth of knowledge, and so the title of this first podcast is going to be Early Spring Red Drum on Live Bait. So we're going to have Tim sort of walk us through how we can all, again, he's coming to you from South Brunswick County, but the way we're going to approach this is he's going to give us information that you can apply up and down the North Carolina coast. Tim, I'm going to let you sort of run this show. I think, you know, you do the schools, you know how this goes out. I know that probably the main question people have is the old, where do I go? Where can I go to catch a red drum in the early spring? What do you got for us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's definitely between the local seminars that we do and at, at the schools themselves, the biggest thing is just everybody, you know, they might have two or three tactics that they think that they've mastered and it's just that they're hitting the wrong spots or they might just be catching them at the wrong time. So that's really kind of what I want to start with today. Um, it doesn't really matter where you're fishing in North South Carolina for the most part. We have big tide swings. Um, there's areas that we fish on a daily basis that over time, we realize that unless we hit it in the perfect 45 minute to an hour window, um, you know, we could have everything. We could have the bait, we could have the boat, we could have the rods, the reels, and, and it doesn't matter if the fish aren't there, they're not going to bite whatever it is that we're throwing. 
So kind of picking apart and learning what makes a spot fishable, when you should be there, and being able to pattern the fish a little bit, that's when you can really start to see, I know myself at least, um, how I've started to see progression in confidence. Um, going from hoping that there's a fish there to knowing pretty darn sure that there should be a fish there. Um, and especially from a charter aspect, that helps a lot because we kind of have an A, B, and a C spot, and, and we're hoping that on that day during that particular tide cycle that, that we don't have to get to D, E, and F spot. Uh, it's the big advantage that, that us guides have over the weekend guy is just that itself, you know, is that we don't, we don't just get to fish on the weekends. And so that amount of seat time, you get to kind of pick up on some of these little things much quicker. And so I've kind of tried my best to tailor my business around taking other anglers of, of all skill levels. And instead of just kind of putting a rod and reel in someone's hand and saying, here you go, have fun. You know, we've tried to really give you the, the what, where, when, why, um, not only does it make it more rewarding when you catch the fish, but then that also leads to skills that you'll be able to take out and hopefully emulate positive results on your boat. All right. Um, take me to yeah. it, man. Take me to a spot. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, it's early spring. Uh, we're, we're just coming off of wintertime. You know, we do have a good wintertime fishery where we are. Uh, the prettier days are the days that we're going to go out and, and so on and so forth. But coming into spring is something that we're always really excited about. Um, you know, the weather, it, instead of going from full bibs and three layers, it's normally jeans and a sweatshirt. Um, the water's warming up here. You know, yesterday the water's already over 70 degrees. Uh, we had a real mild winter this year. So a lot of the redfish are starting to break out of the schools that we normally are used to seeing. We don't get the schooled up fish as tight as say topsail and, and areas to the north of us where you're seeing schools of, you know, hundreds of fish at a time sometimes. Ours are little pockets of fish. So we know that coming off of some of the spots that we fish in the winter, where some fish were, so something that we've started doing is, you know, not venturing all that far. Uh, sometimes, you know, you'll see fish are going to travel, you know, an insane distance to get from spot to spot. But a lot of times we found that just moving, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards in one direction and focusing more on structure now that the fish aren't as packed tightly together is is kind of what, what's been working for us. Um, one thing that I'm not sure is how unique it is to our area versus a lot of others, but we have really long stretches of shell banks, um, both in the ICW and some creeks and on the backsides of inlets where when we say structure, most people, uh, the first thing they think of is bridge pilings, docks, other debris like that. But the structure that we focus on most here, especially this time of year, is very subtle. It could be a long stretch of oyster beds where on one side it's two feet deeper than the other. Um, that paired with making sure that we're kind of sitting in the current the right way, we should know that a fish should be sitting on that edge with his nose pointed in the current, waiting on bait to come back down to him. So that's something that we focus on. Um, small little oyster beds that have you know, a significant amount of water. And depending on what creek you're in, significant <clears throat> could be a different, couple different things. Um, we normally look for at least three or four foot. It could be a pretty shallow section of a creek, and there might be a little bit of an oyster bed that sticks out of the water as you're passing by, and you notice that the current's running different around it than some of the others. Stop and take a look because there might be more water there than you think. Um, and that just provides a good ambush point, both from the backside and the front side, depending on which way the current's running. So that's kind of how we start picking apart a spot, seeing what spot should, should look favorable for the fish to be there first and then fish it on a bunch of different tides with a bunch of different baits and techniques 
until you kind of figure out, okay, this is what we need to do here, and this is the time we need to be there. Um, the jetties, you know, we have we have the, one of our main inlets, the Little River Inlet, has jetties on both sides, and just like normal rock jetties that you're going to find all over the place, they hold fish. This time of year, a lot of our bigger, you know, upper slot fish, 25, 26, 27, and on up over the slot, that's where a lot of our big fish have been congregating here recently. But a lot of our, you know, 20 18s you know we're the winter time is when we start catching you know we're catching a lot more of the smaller fish now that the spring is has kind of sprung on us um you know it's mostly 20 and up you know 20 inches and up is the majority of the size of the redfish that we're seeing uh and they're holding a little bit further inshore we obviously still don't have a lot of bait yet um but we're, i was going to kind of go into how we go about getting the bait that we're using right now before there's you know acres of mullet all over the place well, let me, I, I feel like I know my audience pretty good. And so part of the reason they go to the school is they want help to catch fish. And, you know, we're all living a busy life. We don't have much time. So while getting out and fishing an oyster bed at all different tides and trying to figure it out is sound advice, I believe that a lot of my guys have like a four-hour window, you know, and they have it maybe twice a week, you know, maybe once a week. So for for the best money is what tide and what environment. If I can't fish it around the clock and really figure it out, and I'm just trying to play the odds. For us, early spring, it's a falling tide. Um, yeah, that's personally, that's when we, we really look to target our redfish. You know, right now, while we're not that busy, I can kind of tailor a lot of our trips to the tide where we might not necessarily get that 6.30, a.m. start trying to beat the heat of the day while it's still pretty cool out, we can get a later start in the day and make sure that we're fishing the most favorable tide. Um, I like the high falling tide. Uh, you know, the first, I try to get to, you know, some of the spots that we fish this time of year, we're trying to get there almost on slack tide. You know, you know sit there, kind of make sure we're all set and ready to go. And as soon as that water starts falling out, that's normally when we're, you know, our window starts. The first two hours for the majority of the time for us right now is going to be is going to be the best. The higher the water, the further they can push up onto some of these areas, the tighter they can get to the structure. And um, it just seems to me that it just creates a better environment for them to feed. Uh, the lower portions of the tide are good. Obviously, it concentrates the fish. But for, for me, the once that tide gets just about all the way within the last hour of the fall, I'll normally try to make a big run, use up some of that time, and wait for that first hour or two of the incoming. But, you know, the so I guess to answer your question, the first two hours of the fall would be prime time for us. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure that moving on your way up the coast, a redfish is a redfish. And I, I find it hard to believe that they would have very different tendencies, you know, within such close range of each other. So last, last hour, you know, of the fall into the first hour of the rise and definitely the first two hours of the fall. Um, when you're, Going, talking about, you know, not everybody has a chance to, to fish as frequently, and, and that's true. Um, something that I see all the time from, from local anglers is that if even if it's just a Saturday morning that they get a chance to fish, they fish the same four spots in the same order every weekend in a row, and they might go out the first two weekends, and, and they don't catch a whole lot. They might stop at the tackle shop the third day and talk to me or somebody else or, or talk to a buddy that says, you know, this is the bait that you need to use. They go out the third weekend and they catch a ton of fish. 
the first thing that they think of is, oh, man, this was the bait that I've been missing all along. He was right. Then they tell all their buddies, and then they go out the fourth weekend, and they're back to, to not catching a whole lot. But in reality, that third weekend that they went out, they might have just hit it at the exact tide, and that's something to take note of. So anytime you're catching fish in, in any spot during any season or tide, the first thing I notice, you know, take note of is, okay, what was the tide doing when I was here? And so chances are if you go back to a spot three, four times under similar conditions and the same tide and you catch fish, then you can say, okay, this is my mid-falling tide spot for the foreseeable next couple of weeks until a major season change. So I, I like all that. I mean, I, I think we can all follow that and apply it. As far as environment goes, you know, again, if we're trying to use South Brunswick to help us out across, up and down the North Carolina coast, I think, you know, we do see shell banks. You do see those. Certainly, it seems like the old oyster rock, the oyster bars are might be the most consistent structure up and down the coast. So tell me about a little bit more. I mean, you went into a little bit more about reading that oyster bar, like where I want to set up on it, you know, how I want to approach it, you know, at least to start. I mean, if I want to hit it a couple of ways, fine. But what what do you do? You know, if you were new and you were at an oyster rock up in the Swansboro area, what would be your first play? Absolutely. So, you know, talking right now, you know, we're going to get kind of more into what live bait tactics we're using. You know, boat positioning is, is a huge thing. Um, if you have a power pole or a trolling motor, you know, setting up, if we're drifting baits, like we're going to talk about, um, you know, with a slip cork bobber, say, you know, we're going to want to set up a good ways, about a, a full cast distance, at least off and up from the structure that you're wanting to fish. You know, we're wanting to fish, we're wanting to basically take advantage of the drift in the current that's wrapping itself around that oyster rock. So in an area that we fish, you know, quite frequently, we want to set up almost out of casting range and we want to cast to the front. If say the oyster bar is, is 10 feet long, you know, we want to cast maybe five feet up from it, let it drift all the way to the start of it and then let it drift the whole way down and then maybe another five feet past as well, because different days and different levels of the tide. We've seen them. Sometimes they want to hold much further up. Sometimes they want to hold much further back. Um, but most of the time they're going to be relatively close. So once you've kind of drifted, say way, you know, 10, 15, 20 yards past the structure that you're wanting to fish, it's a good idea to just reel it back in. But the one thing you don't want to do is set up too close. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of choking yourself off at that point where you don't, you can't take advantage of it except for just the one spot where your bait lands. And if you don't hit that one spot, you know, it's almost a recast. So setting yourself up, even if you have to drop the anchor, just make sure that you, you leave yourself ample room to be able to cast back to what you're, what you're wanting to fish. And that's, you know, either on either end of the tide, you know, say the tide is falling out, you'll set way up and in the same thing in reverse, if it's a, a spot that you've been catching fish on the rising tide. Um, now, if you're fishing it with artificials, you know, not having to reel against the current would be what you'd want to, you'd rather cast up current, let the current bring your bait back to you. So then you would just do the exact in reverse. Um, you know, so just keeping, keeping your distance. I've found that, you know, even if you do spook redfish, the majority of the time, if you give it just a few minutes, you'll see them start to filter back in. Um, once they get comfortable in a spot, they normally don't like to leave for too long, but it, you can definitely blow them out of there for, for a few minutes. And that might be all that you really wanted to give that spot to begin with. So coming in slow, you know, making sure that you're way off of where you're wanting to fish and understanding how the current runs through there so that you can make sure that your bait is, you know, coming naturally through the area where the fish should eat. 
All right, I like that. So we are, you hit a couple of things there. So what you're going to move us into is when you're doing this red drum fishing, you're doing it, you're doing it a drift fish. Are you always anchoring? I'm sorry, I, I know you we're talking about a slip float and I know we're going to be drifting some bait. Are you always anchored up or are you sometimes drifting with the tide too? Um, sometimes we'll drift with the tide. Uh, this time of year, we're, there's really kind of three baits that we're using. You know, mud minnows are still readily available at most tackle shops. Um, you know, we work really hard in our area to, to get a good supply of live shrimp, um, whether it's dragon, throwing the cat's net. You know, it's not really prime time where there's shrimp all over the place yet, but that's what makes it a good time to be using shrimp. Uh, you know, we'll have to, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll buy them from local tackle shops when they're available if we can't catch them ourselves. Um, but between shrimp, mud minnows, and then as we start to get a little bit more into the spring, further back into some of the creeks, you'll get the, the small little striped minnows. Um, they're a little bit bigger than the majority of the mud minnows that you're going to find. The only time on still talking about an oyster bed, you know, in a creek situation, the only time we're going to really drift past that is if I'm putting one of the two species of minnows on a jig head. So, and that's really, even still, I would rather set up and fish a spot effectively for five minutes than drift past it and reset up and drift past it again and do that for 20 minutes. I think especially, you know, if we have multiple people fishing, we can cover the whole area. And if one of us gets bit, then we know, okay, you know, there, there might be a few fish here. And if we have somebody cast it on the front side, someone in the middle and someone to the back and all three are in a prime position and we give it 10, 15 minutes, and we and we don't catch a fish then we know that it's probably time to just move on so is that pretty standard do, 10 to 15 minutes i'm sorry man is that pretty standard like 10 to 15 minutes is that sort of uh i yeah for for me at least um i'm not really now if it's a spot that i know that we've been doing so good at i'll give it longer you know we'll grind we'll grind it out a little bit longer but um, yeah, most of the time, you know, we're operating on a, on a four hour window, but the last thing I want to do is give an hour to a spot that I know that we should pull up. If we're there at the right time, it should be almost, you know, instantaneous, if not a few minutes later, you know, we'll, but I, we kind of run and gun a little bit. I don't, I don't believe in, in sitting in a spot. I, I believe that you can sit in one spot all day and at some point in the day you will catch fish, but you have missed five or six opportunities in five or six other spots to catch more fish. So, you know, we kind of will, especially if an oyster bar situation, you know, where we're not, it's not a big target. It's a very, very specific area where the fish should be. Um, you know, we'll give it 10, 15 minutes. And if we haven't gotten bit or, you know, or pulled a fish off or caught one, you know, or more than one or two, you know, we normally will just kind of pick up and, and move on down and try to find another spot. But, okay. you know, that's, I don't like, that's why I don't like drifting as much this time of year for redfish specifically, just because, we're trying to be pretty accurate. Um, they're going to be holding tight to the structure, whether it's the ledge, whether it's a rock or, or whatever it is, you know, they're going to, so if we have our baits where they should be able to, to swing around and grab it and they haven't in a short period of time, you know, we'll, we'll pick up and we'll move on. Okay. So, uh, you got us at a spot, you got us anchored up, you got us in position. What do we do now? Walk us through it. You know, what you're throwing out there and, and how you're, how you're covering that zone. Yeah, absolutely. So the, my absolute favorite, you know, way to fish this time of year is with a slip float. I know a lot of people, you know, you know, popping corks are very popular. We don't, we don't use popping corks as much. We're, we're using more of the, the small, um, well, this is the medium size, you know, orange, orange and green Billy boy bobbers. Um, and 
there's more than one way to rig this and it's taken me a little bit of time to figure out my preferred way um, learning some things from from some other people that works for them and, and modifying that a little bit uh, starting off you know this is not a this is not a rig that you we're going to really be able to force a fish around uh, you, if I'm using this rig nine times out of ten, it's with live shrimp. We have floated minnows before. It, the hookup ratio is not not as good. It, if the fish are, are are readily biting and there's a bunch of them there, we can save some shrimp and we can float minnows. And if they start biting, then we know that that they you know that they're there. But most of the time, it's with it's with shrimp. So with this with this rig, yeah, we're we're mainly using you know a seven foot light setup with a 2,500 to 3,000 level spinning reel um, and 10 pound braid. We're looking to get the majority, the, yeah, the majority of the spool, the most we can get because the longer we can drift it, the more area we're covering other than what we're talking about, say an oyster rock. If we can let this thing drift 150 yards and all of a sudden we get bit twice at 100 yards, we know where the fish are. We might be able to slot a little bit further down to them. Um, but starting out, the majority of the time, that you see people that have these tied on, they're going to have their rig tied directly onto their braid. And that's something that I did for, for years and years. Uh, a good friend of mine actually did his a little different. And since then it's worked out much better. So I actually take at least six or seven foot, almost, you know, most of the time I do a rod's length. So it'll be about seven foot of 15 pound fluorocarbon leader. Uh, sometimes I'll go heavier with the leader if we're very specifically red fishing, but right now we're also catching a lot of trout as well. So, Having the lighter leader sometimes helps us, you know, just get more more interest from the fish a little bit quicker. So for sake of demonstration, we're not going to cut seven feet, but um, we'll clip off a little bit of leader there. The first thing that we're going to want to do is we're going to use a bobber stopper. So I'm not sure if you can see that right there. These are the actual eagle claw bobber stoppers as opposed to the ones that come with the cork themselves. I like these much better, especially when you know you're using. You can use the same rig all day. the The bobber stoppers that come with the cork are a yarn material, and once they get wet, it's sometimes your, your bobber will start sliding on you. With these, when you set the depth that you want to stay at, you know that you know your bait is passing through at the depth that you set it until you want to change it. So they have a. This will be really tough to see. They have really tiny little loops on the ends of these the end of these bobber stoppers and you'll just pass your line through your loop and grab a hold of your bobber stopper and it pulls it onto your leader okay so i kind of skipped a step that seven foot of leader that you're cutting off you're going to want to tie that directly to your braid um, because seven foot of leader there's going to be a portion of it that's going to be sitting on the spool so you can't use a swivel um, nine times out of ten i'm just going to tie a double uni knot and you can you know, you know, three wraps with fluorocarbon, four or five with the braid. The knot is really thin, passes through the guides fine, and sits on your spool nice and tight. And I've never had a problem with it. So you slide the bobber stopper on. From the bobber stopper, we put a small bead. The bead does two things. It keeps your cork from, you know, from sliding your bobber stopper up further than you want it to. And it also keeps the two from getting stuck to each other because the rubber that's on the bobber stopper itself will sometimes get caught on the little rigging straw that's on the on the cork. Okay. So from there, you're just gonna slide your cork on. And these are the medium-sized Billy Boy bobbers. I've tried the smaller ones, I've tried the bigger ones. The medium size just works best for me. It's easy to see. It gives the right amount of flotation where you're not having to use a ton of weight underneath. Um, that would be the, so the fourth 
fourth step to this rig right here is is using an egg sinker. It's tricky to find the right amount of weight egg sinker to get the cork to stand up vertically so that our bait hangs vertically below it. So say we set our cork at five feet, we know that we want our shrimp to pass through at five feet. And if our cork is laying sideways, the shrimp is either shallower or deeper depending on what side it's on. So the three, a three eighths ounce is the perfect size weight for this size cork. Um, if you were going to scale your cork up or down, I would go lighter or heavier, but the three eighths ounce is, is what works perfect for us with this size. Underneath, just like any time you're going to put an egg weight on your line, underneath that, we're going to put a, another bead. And then we're going to put a swivel. Um, yeah, these are just 80-pound tests, you know, small swivels. We're using the hooks that we use on this, I'll show you here in a second, are, are very small. So we're, we're never going to really be able to put too much pressure on the fish. That's why I like fishing it with the lightest rods that I have. You know, we fish light leader, light drag, and... It's just one of those things where you are going to tighten the drag down on a big fish one time because he's dragging you all over the place and we're going to lose it. And then that'll be the last time that you do that most of the, most of the time. But if you slide your bobber stopper all the way down, it'll look just like that. So that's the setup that's going to be, obviously, you trim your tag in. That'll be the setup that is on the fluorocarbon that you've tied to your braid. Then from right underneath, get this out of the way. Grab another little piece of leader. From the swivel to your hook, you don't necessarily want to make that longer than about a foot and a half because there are certain scenarios, for me at least, where we're drifting our baits extremely close to the bank. So if you have a three-foot-long section of leader underneath the portion of your rig that's adjustable, it's you're, you're not going to be able to drift as shallow as you'd like. So foot and a half is normally where I'll start. And then if we break a hook off, we can tie another one back on as long as it's at least 12 inches. Yeah, that, that's all you need. And then just another knot, you know, whatever knot you prefer to tie. I'm just tying a uni knot just to your swivel. Those uh, slip float rigs are pretty popular down there in South Brunswick. I don't, I don't think you're allowed to launch a boat without a slip float rig on your boat. <laughs> Normally, uh, you can tell who, who's been doing it a long time, especially this time of year, because you can almost, you'll hear their uh, corks rattling before you even hear their boat behind you. <laughs> They'll have uh, eight or nine of them, but, but, you know, about a foot and a half, a foot and a half a liter or so. And then I use a number six treble hook. Um, very, very small. A lot, sometimes people use kale hooks. Over, you know, the treble hook just works leaps and bounds the best. This is essentially shrimp, the same Sorry to interrupt. Shrimp or minnow? Uh, shrimp or minnow. Okay. Uh, I, I don't specifically drift minnows enough to warrant really changing the hooks out. Um, it's if if we're in a position where we're drifting minnows, I'm pretty confident that it's the the, the same size hook is going to work as long. Now you wouldn't be able to drift mullet with this. There's not enough shank on the hook if the if it's anything bigger than a mud minnow. Right. But yeah, it's the number six. It it does it doesn't weigh the shrimp down. Uh, that way we're able to use smaller shrimp, bigger shrimp. The bigger shrimp, it just looks like one of the whiskers. The smaller shrimp, it's not so big that it's very noticeable to the fish. Some people like gold hooks. Some people like silver. I just I use the VMC. Um, they're, they're the black nickel plated. And, yeah, they're super strong. Yeah, A redfish, most of the time, they're not going to swallow this, but they probably are going to get it somewhere 
in a hard part of their jaw. So having the stronger treble hooks is, is a big thing for us. I've tried the eagle claw ones in the past, and a lot of times we'll have them where they'll come through and they'll take a bite of the take a bite of the shrimp and go to take off running with it and we'll come back and two of the prongs of the treble have been completely crushed in so the last last portion that's you know probably the most important to getting it to drift the way you want it to is a split shot uh, if there's any bit of current that day more than than normal i'll use the heaviest split shot that comes in one of the little round packs uh, if it's not going to be a crazy tide that day we can we can use a smaller one but we'll normally just crimp this right onto the middle of the, the right in a dead middle section between our, our swivel and our hook. Okay. So that just helps keep the shrimp down. We've seen before where, if it's especially if it's a good sized shrimp, our cork will be drifting and we're watching it, and all of a sudden the shrimp will come right up out of the water. You know, even with a split shot on there. So having a little bit of weight to keep him dangling down there in the area that we want him to be, yeah, just just helps helps keep the bait in the in the strike zone a little longer so essentially that's that's what you got you have your whole yeah you know, you slide your bobber stopper up and down that's as far as your cork will float and then you know that from your from your little rubber stopper to your hook is how deep in the water column you're fishing uh for redfish especially we're kind of wanting to get it as deep as we can so we're almost we'll set it up where if we're in five foot of water we're going to guesstimate about four and a half feet and if all of a sudden our cork starts hanging up, we can slot it down just a little bit until we kind of just want to just drag it right across the bottom. Sorry to interrupt the show. This is Gary here. I want to give a couple of shout outs to a couple of sponsors of this episode. First is Dave's Outpost down in Sunset Beach, North Carolina. Dave's Outpost, the shop that Tim fishes out of primarily, a great source for fishing supplies, live bait, tackle, line spooling, and pretty much everything related to fishing even hunting and water sports. And we also wanna thank the Gay family, Backwater Candy. Backwater Candy is the inshore division of the longstanding, very popular Blue Water Candy Company just down the road from the Fish Post Office. And we appreciate those two sponsors being a part of the Fisherman's Post podcast. Trout are gonna feed higher in the water column so we can drift shallower for them, but it's especially this time of year, a lot of our bigger trout that we're catching in the spring are in there with the schools of redfish. So we, we can have one cork drifting shallow, one cork drifting deep in the same spot and catching two different species. But this would be our go-to rig for this time of year. Um, like Gary said, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be five or six of these tied on a lot of the boats that you're going to see out fishing and especially in our area. And yeah, it's deadly, deadly effective. Um, I, so we're setting up, I guess what I'm going at now, like, I, I mean, that rig, I've seen it be effective. I've been effective when I've been on the boat with you. And so we're also just picking different lines. Like I know we're talking about water depth and how we're setting it. And then we're also, you're trying to drift closer to the structure further away from the structure. You're mixing it up. So that depends on where we are at. So say I have three people on the boat and we're fishing an oyster bed, we're going to set, we're going to put one out. We're going to get it as close to that structure as possible where they're still moving current because this rig sitting still isn't ne not nearly as effective as if it's covering a lot of ground. So we're going to, it, and most times if there's a slack portion between where the current kind of stops and where the structure starts, the fish are going to hold out more in the area with the current because that's going to be less work on them. The bait should be filtering right down towards them. So we're going to get it, as close as we can to the structure, 
that's where there's still some moving current and we'll send one right after another in that same spot. Now, a lot of these shell beds, especially that we've been talking about where if it has a hard ledge on one side, those first two hours of the fall, there's gonna be a lot of water and there's, it's gonna be more flooded up towards the top. So we'll send two or three drifts down super tight to the bank, very shallow, and then we'll send one cork right to where that ledge is supposed to be. And we'll kind of figure out if the fish are holding up higher or deeper, depending on the day. Uh, if we're fishing the jetties, we might fish obviously as close to the rocks as we can get, but at a couple different depths because they just might, you know, the, as rocks fall off, there might be a, a single rock out there that is not as deep as it is, but not as shallow as, you know, as where we'd be trout fishing, you know, we'll kind of find a happy medium. That's something that I really like about, about this rig is that you, on every cast, if you, if you're interested, you can adjust the depth. So if, if all of a sudden you go two or three drifts without, and say it's a rising tide, you've gone two or three drifts without getting a bite and you think the tide might've come up a foot since you've been there, go ahead and, you know, drop your cork back down. You might've just been fishing over top of them. Even though our water is still holding in the upper, upper sixties right now, they're not, it's not quite warm enough for them to have the energy to come up and, and really start blowing up on top water plugs yet. And that kind of thing. So we kind of got to put it right in front of their face. So depending on where you're at, we'll kind of dictate, you know, even if it, even if we're fishing a, a maybe a grass line in a creek, and you know we know that really tight to the grass is, is super shallow, but if you come off the grass just a little bit, it'll be it'll be deeper. You know, have one cork up there at set at two feet, drifting really tight to the grass. Have one way off at eight feet, and see if maybe the fish didn't decide to pull off of the grass a little bit and are holding deeper. So this is just a great way to find fish, and then you know this isn't the only way to catch them either. So. A lot of times we'll use this to kind of key in on them and then say we're coming back and we're wanting to fish with artificials the next day. If we know where the fish were because we were able to track them down with this, you know, we can kind of have a little bit more confidence going after them with, with something else. Well, I'm going to, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to advocate again for my guys that just don't get much time, you know, that have like a small window that get out there. Cause I think those same people, at least in early spring, are going to have a harder time to get live shrimp on the boat. They're going to have an easier time to get little mud minnows or bigger mud minnows on the boat. Like, you know, shrimp are great, but I know that, you know, even up here in Wilmington, Wrightsville Beach way, not so easy to get my hands on. So one, I'd just like you to talk a little bit more about maybe, I mean, talk about hooking the shrimp, talk a little bit about hooking the minnow. But the other thing I want to get out, because I just sort of thought about this from my time fishing with the slip cork is... Um, walk me through the cast a little bit, because I know that a lot of times, not a lot of times, sometimes that line can foul on the cast. And so there's, there's always like little advice the captain will give me to help make sure I'm not crossing the line, fouling the line. And then once that bobber is sitting pretty imperfect and I'm starting my drift, you guys are also good at coaching, you know, about keeping the line taut or just how to play the wind because... You know, we're going to imagine it's a pretty day, but the reality is when we finally get that window to go out there, there might be some, you know, a little bit more wind than we want to play with. Of course. So, you know, hooking the shrimp, we're going right through the horn. Um, I wish I had a, a shrimp with me to show you, but... No shrimp? Um, <laughs> there's a there's a clear spot right on the top of the head of the shrimp where his horn is, and that's where we'll want to go deep enough underneath his horn so that we get a good hold on him, but not so deep that we hit him in the brain and kill him. So that'll be, that's really the only way to hook him with this rig using the style of hook that I use. And what you were talking about was exactly right. One of the hardest things that, that people have 
is A, casting this rig, and then B, getting it to work how we want it to in the water. It goes against everything that we're taught as fishermen. You know, with this rig, we want to have slack in the line so that there's nothing keeping the cork from floating with the current naturally. And we also can't set the hook. Once that cork goes under the water, we just have to flip the bale closed and reel as fast as we possibly can to get the slack out. Once we come tight to the fish, then we can, you know, kind of dance with them a little bit and, and realize if we need to, you know, kind of go faster or slower, whatever it is, if it's a bigger fish or a smaller fish. But we don't want to set the hook because there's there's basically no shank to this. It's a very small hook. So the, the biggest thing is, you know, when you talk about the cork kind of piggybacking on itself, a lot of times when people cast, your, the top of your line, you know, as it flips itself around, will get wrapped up underneath the bottom of the cork, and then you'll see it floating sideways or upside down, and then you know that your shrimp is not nearly where you want it to be. The biggest way that I've been able to combat that was this extra piece of fluorocarbon. The braid is, especially the lighter braid on some of the smaller spinning rails, it tangles so easily, especially if it's windy. The fluorocarbon is much more rigid, so as it as you cast, you know, we never really want to cast it all that all that hard. It's more of just kind of a, you know, underhand, maybe underhand pitch or from sidearm. We don't want to have, we don't want to reel it all the way up to the rod tip. We want to leave basically the whole rig dangling and we kind of just want to almost unfold it and lay it out there. So the fluorocarbon definitely helps the whole rig land flat as opposed to kind of, you know, doing a somersault in the air and then getting tangled on itself. So that was really the only way that I've been able to combat that from happening on a regular basis was adding all that fluorocarbon. Not only is that helpful with keeping the rig untangled, it also is got some elasticity to it as opposed to the braid that's very rigid, which helps me using the kind of hooks that I use not pull as many hooks out of the fish. Shrimp has, you know, it's, it's a constant battle when they're not readily available. And like I said, you know, we've tracked them down at tackle shops from here to, you know, an hour in both directions if it means that you know we'll have them for the next day but mud minnows are just as effective as we start getting later in the spring so a lot of times how i'll set up on my boat especially if we have multiple anglers we'll have one or two people drifting with the tide at, you know maybe off the front or off the back of the boat depending on how we want to position it but we're always wanting to drift the corks with the tide you know we're never going to cast it back up current and let it come back to us because that distance that it floats is not nearly as long as if we send it with the current and we can send it all the way until we almost can't see it anymore but on the opposite side of the boat we'll often be having you know we'll just put minnows on the bottom so what makes it a good spot for the redfish to be going out the front will be equally out the back and we're just covering the rest of that distance so a lot of times a traditional carolina rig um, maybe three quarter ounce weight is, is really as heavy as we go fishing in anything less than seven or eight foot of water and for that, I, I really just use, it's just a, just a basic Carolina rig. And then I use a number one kale hook. I still use a pretty small hook. That way, if we do want to put shrimp on the bottom, uh, it, it works great. We always want to match the size hook with the size bait that we're using. So we'll scale the hook size up when we start using bigger mullet through the middle of the summer into the fall. But for right now, especially when we're using mud minnow, the number one kale, it's got the slight offset to it. And you know, nine times out of 10, even if our clients or, or, you know, or anybody just wants to set the rod and the rod holder out the back of the boat while they're drifting a cork out the front, we're not going to miss too many fish. It's going to catch them in the corner. And I find that my hookup ratio with, with these hooks is a little bit better than with a circle hook. And I don't, it's, it's not a, 
not too common to really gut hook one. So there really isn't a disadvantage to using the hook that's got more of a wide gap to it. If we're fishing in an area like around an oyster bed uh, and we're wanting to do more casting and less floating or letting it sit, we're almost always going to just put our mud minnows right on a jig head. So this is uh, a backwater candy jig and the shape of the jig is significant. So when we're throwing artificials, my favorite jig to use are the, the trout eyes or the redfish eye jigs. And if you look at the from the front where it's, it's thin, it's slender. So we're wanting to, if we're casting artificials, especially for trout, we're wanting to keep the bait moving. The, the thinner jig is gonna cut through the water better and it's gonna give more action to the bait. These jigs that are more forward weighted are gonna sit on the bottom you know, and the hook point is always going to be up and it's not going to get hung as nearly as bad. Our hook isn't going to get hung on oysters and that kind of thing. So we're able to get much tighter to the structure. And even if we just want to dead stick the bait and we just want to, you know, cast out and just let it sit, the hook point is always going to be up, meaning the back end of the fish is going to be up waving around. And I've found that since I switched over and started using these jigs more with live bait on them, it's worked better for me. Uh, with this, we're using at least three sixteenths, most of the time a quarter ounce. Um, so that the kind of stays where we want it. And then we still have the ability to move it. And it's a little bit more nimble than a Carolina rig, easier to cast, easier to get exactly where we want it. And not nearly as, as many, uh, hangups on oyster beds and things like that. So, uh, I guess I would say on your, your preference for length of leader on a Carolina rig. And then you mentioned that Carolina rig and the jig head. You know, we're letting that sit, and so the redfish is mostly set in the hook itself. Um, on that slope on the slip float rig, you know, I see my bobber go under. I mean, do I have a short window to flip that bale? Do I have to? Do I have to set the hook? Do I just come tight? So, um, so we don't set the hook at all. It. I promise every every charter that I've had, you know, almost ever that we've been using the slip float, I always tell everybody don't set the hook and make sure that we get the slack out quickly. And it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a, a natural thing. It's, it's kind of a, it's a learned skill for sure. Because as soon as we see that bobber go under, it's just a, it's that same feeling you get when you're a little kid fishing with a bobber on a pond, you know, it's, it's, oh man, I got a fish. So the first thing you want to do is set the hook and set, to have the wherewithal to close the bale, then get all the slack out. And then once we do come tight to the fish, not jerk on them all that hard, it's kind of, it takes two or three times to get used to, but we're definitely not setting the hook. And we definitely have to be pretty quick on the trigger. So as we're letting it drift out, you know, I kind of, I position the bale so that my hand, that my left hand being where, you know, on the side of the reel that is going to be cranking, I kind of like having my pointer finger or, or any finger on the bale so that as we're watching, all I need to do in one motion is flip the bale and start reeling. And it's, it's, you know, and you can typically get it out in time. But the treble hook gives us a little bit of, of a buffer there where if we're a little late or we might, you know, have fumbled with the bale for a second where we might have more than one, you know, area that he's hooked so that if it pulls on one side, we're, we still have a chance of getting them on the other. Um, but it's, it kind of needs to happen in pretty quick succession. So that's the, that's the only drawback about that. Now, sometimes if the wind is blowing really hard and it might be opposing the current, you might have more slack out than you want. And then there are times where the slip float is going to be just, too too difficult to use if, if the wind and the tide are opposing or if you have a really strong crosswind from the direction that you're trying to fish it'll pull more line off of your spool than you'd like and in trying to tighten that up when we 
when we tighten up the cork, it's going to pull it further away from the, the drift or the path that we were kind of wanting it to drift. So it does take a little bit of getting used to it. And the best thing to do is, like I said, just try it. Um, everybody kind of has their own technique. I like to feather the line. You know, some people like to sit there and, and hand feed the line out. Um, I find that it works better to basically, as long as you're, you know, you're, you don't have any crazy wind knots or anything on your spool with your braid, you can just give the rod a, a, a shake two or three times and it'll pull off three, four feet of slack. And then you can do that every three, four or five seconds, depending on how fast the current is moving. So that's something that it changes. I use sometimes if, if I notice that people are, are struggling a little bit with getting it, getting it to float how we want it, I'll go back to a shorter rod where instead of using a seven, seven foot or a seven and a half, I'll go down to a six or a six and a half foot rod that doesn't have as much movement required in order to get the line off of the spool when we're drifting the corks. But if there's any bit of tension on the line as the cork is drifting, it'll start to lay over. And that'll be our first telltale sign that it's either hung on something or we haven't, we don't have enough slack out. As that cork lays over, up comes our bait. So now instead of our bait being at the five foot mark where we wanted it to be, it's back up to the three foot mark and that might be over top of the fish. Um, yeah, but there, other than those little subtle, subtle good difficulties, the slip cork is a great way for, you know, a everyday angler or an angler that doesn't get a chance to get out very often. It's, it's very visual. So it's exciting in that sense. You don't feel the bite, but you know, it's, it's, that's where the, the, the trade-off would be, you know, you get to watch it happen. So uh, on a Carolina rig, I see people all the time that make their leaders really, really long. And yeah, to me, a Carolina rig is a bottom rig. So having the weight sit on the bottom, but the rest of your hook and bait and everything else be four feet off, you know, with a crazy long section of leader, you're kind of defeating the purpose of the rig. So I normally, I kind of go on the same, same ratio as I do from the swivel to the hook on the float rig, about 18 inches. Uh, and once it gets down to about a foot, then we're most of the time going to retie. But, you know, a foot and a half or so is, is kind of the sweet spot. That way, it's basically almost at eye level for the size fish that we're wanting to catch. So, and with, obviously, with the jig heads, you know, I'm going to tie on a little bit longer of a section of leader. That way, if later in the day we do want to decide to throw artificials, we'll be able to just pop our, our whatever live bait we had on off, throw on our favorite gulp shrimp or, or Z-Man bait, and, and we'll, you know, it'll be ready to go. So on that, on that Carolina rig, are you finding, you know, again, the focus here is early spring, putting a live bait on that, a live, a live minnow on that Carolina rig is a better option than a piece of cut bait. And with both, I guess, I know you said with the jig head, you're just letting it stick, letting it sit. On that Carolina rig, any action to it, or are we just sitting and letting it stay in place too? If if we're gonna want to cover a little bit of water with it, then I almost almost exclusively will use the jig head. Um, other than when we're flounder fishing, where we're kind of wanting to use the Carolina rig and be able to move it around a little bit, if I have somebody or myself on a Carolina rig for a redfish, most of the time it's it's either in my hand stationary or it's going in a rod holder while I'm doing something else. So we leave that we leave that pretty much alone. Uh, if the water is really, really murky, we've had days of rain or high wind and you know, our water down, we don't have the luxury of, of really any visibility. So it's, it's, we're almost always fishing in chocolate milk covered water, you know, where we are and scent is a big, is a big thing. So if, if we, if we're fishing in water for us, that's even more murky than normal, which to everyone else would be 
you know, really, really dark. Then sometimes we'll use cut bait, um, just where we're hoping to rely on the fish's sense of smell at that point more than anything else. But I, I kind of prefer live bait to cut bait. Um, if, you know, sometimes we'll switch it up, you know, we'll put one live bait out, one piece of cut bait out, and then have some shrimp going out the front. And if we do all three of those things in a spot and we're not catching a redfish, then it's definitely time to move to another spot. Cause you know, moving on as we get later into the spring, you know, blue crab is, is probably, you know, the number one bait that's for us. That's kind of May, you know, May into June that we start to see, you know, the redfish kind of switch their diet over and they start feeding on blue crab. Now a redfish, if a mud minnow or a mullet or a striped minnow or a live shrimp, you get that in front of his face. I don't really think they're too picky. Um, but as far as scent goes, I don't typically use cut bait until it's time to use blue crab. Um, and with that, you know, we're almost rigging it like, like how you would rig for like a catfish. You know, we'll use pantyhose, cut blue crab, and you know, we're making a small little pocket that's reusable. We can catch two or three fish on it. And that just goes right on a Carolina rig. Um, Something else that we haven't talked about, you know, docks obviously hold redfish. Uh, we try not to do as much dock fishing on charters if, if we can help it. Um, but some days that that's what it calls for. And if we know that there's some, some good fish on a certain dock, we'll definitely give it a shot for a few minutes. I prefer to use jig heads around a dock as opposed to the Carolina rig, just because it's so much more accurate. If I know that a certain piling of the dock is where the redfish have been sitting, or that might be where, you know, I think that they should be. I know that we can get really, really close to it. And if we do, you know, if we kind of get wrapped up there for a second, it's much easier to, to untangle a jig head than it is a Carolina rig. Okay. So I've, we've already talked about, man, we're going to bring you back, you know, at a later time, we're going to talk about summer fall species. Um, I think we're getting ready to wrap up, you know, our first podcast yep. here, the early red, early spring red drum on live bait. Any final thoughts on that topic? It's only going to get better. Um, I know in our area and, and just about everywhere, you know, we're just now starting to see the fish break out of, out of their wintertime patterns, you know, early, early spring, you know, like, you know, March, early March, you know, we're still doing a lot of trout fishing. Uh, as we've gotten more towards into April now, we're going to start seeing our redfish numbers, both size and numbers of fish increase. So it's something that we look forward to every year. Um, you know, any of these, any of these tactics apply to every bit of water that you could fish, especially in the state of North Carolina. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to get better. And yeah, that could be said for, for everything. I know there's a lot of people that are, are, uh, are hurting right now. So something that I've you know, been trying to trying to preach, you know, even if it's not with us, you know, any of your local charter captains, give them a call, check in on them, you know, book a trip if you can for, for a later date, um, and get out on the water as soon as you can, if you have the ability to, because the fishing is getting pretty good. So walk me through, uh, I mean, now I'm getting ready to transition this into plugging you a little bit. Um, you're more than redfish. You're more than redfish in the spring. Walk me through the calendar. Give me the quick walk through the calendar year. But for people who yeah. might be thinking about calling you and booking you, what do you like to do throughout the calendar year? Absolutely. Um, wintertime, you know, I do have, I have a second boat as well. Um, I have an 18 foot Maverick. So we don't, we don't exactly have the, you know, the flats of Florida or anything where, where we are, but we do have some super shallow water um, redfish that are available through the, through the wintertime. Um, and that's really kind of what we focus on. As we move into spring, early spring, like I said, is, is our last big, strong push of trout. Um, we're starting to get a lot of the big females, and, and they'll stick around through mid-April. So trout fishing through March, April, May, we're moving on into red fishing. Um, summertime, we're doing a lot of fun fishing, you know, where it's a, it's a – 
a bunch of fish. You know, for us down here, we're always going to target redfish. Um, black drum become a little bit more prevalent. Um, on days where it's nice and calm, we can go, you know, go after Spanish on the beach. Um, you know, uh, now we have to wait until August to go flounder fishing, but, you know, May, June is, is a really, really good time for flounder fishing in our area. So hopefully we'll be able to get some things sorted out with that soon and, and get back to doing that. But, you know, so this summer it's basically going to be redfish, black drum, still some trout, um, some Spanish, and, and, you know, just kind of trying to stay busy through the summer. As we move into September, uh, water starts cooling down a little bit. We're, we're getting a better slot redfish bite, something similar to like what we get in the spring. Um, October for us is our big bull redfish time, late September through the month of October. Um, you know, those are the big, you know, 30, 40 plus inch fish that we go catch. Most of them are out towards the area inlets. Sometimes we'll run the beach fronts for them, but that's almost a, almost a guarantee as close to one as, as I'm willing to offer. Um, you know, the big bull redfish is always something that we look forward to. And then November being probably the best month that we have for numbers of trout. We're starting to catch big ones. Um, most of the fish are 18 to 21, 22 inches and we have a pile of them. So that's always a lot of fun if you're wanting to really put numbers up and, and, and catch a lot of fish. And then, you know, December, everything's cooling back down, still catching some trout, but we're moving back into our shallow water redfish stuff. So. I'm, I'm sure Billy's gonna create a beautiful graphic that'll be aesthetic and functional, but why don't you tell us how people get in touch with you if they wanna know more, if they wanna yeah. book you? Absolutely, um, you know, I'm on all the social media networks. Um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, it's Tideline Charters. Um, you know, my website is TidelineCharterFishing.com. Uh, on, on any of those is my phone number. I'm not as tech savvy as, definitely not as Billy, but, you know, as, as maybe the average person, um, phone, giving me a call is by far the best way to get a hold of me. Um, you know, if I don't answer, leave me a voicemail, I'll get right back to you. Um, email is, is, is listed on all those as well, and I do my best about checking that every day, but um, you know, by phone, any, anyway, I'll, I'll make sure that I get back to you. And if it's not right now, if it's maybe later in the year, you know, that you're able to get down, we try to make sure that we're, you know, as open and honest as possible is what we're going to, what you can expect to catch and, and what is going to be the best times. And we can normally set it up to where it'll be a fun trip for everybody. Tim, it was a pleasure having you as our first featured cap, uh, captain and on our Fisherman's Post podcast i think you know there was a reason we called you there's a reason you, we invited you and i i believe you delivered i think billy asked the right hard-hitting questions at the right time i think he definitely <laughs> contributed in his special way i know personally i nailed it i i think i just crushed this interview it's almost like i've been doing this for a while and i think we're you i think we're going to say goodbye i think billy's going to tell us a little bit yeah. more about what to expect from future podcasts but I think we're saying goodbye, uh, Tim yeah, DeSano. Well, thanks, Gary, Billy, both. Thank you for having me. I look forward to hopefully doing it again soon and, uh, and checking out the next episode. And uh, nothing but the best. Yeah, man. You too, man. Thank you so much. Take, Take it easy, guys. Gary, what an episode, man. What, what a good interview. Right? I'm proud of you for picking the Tim to come on here and just, dang, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. I couldn't even ask a question because he was answering all the questions I had. And we it didn't even perfect. We didn't even get to the color purple. I mean, the color purple... <laughs> Is something that Tim and I will broach at our next one. Inside joke, you could read a past Tidelines column, but you know, the good jokes you do have to explain. I realize that the better jokes call for explanation. But yeah, man, times, he was good. Man. Young, good energetic man. He cares about his craft. He's working on it on a regular basis, man. Love having him be a part of the schools. 
And yeah, man, he just did great with the podcast. Yeah. So make sure you guys go book uh, book Tim, if, it, if at all possible, and go check him out. And also, while I'm going to promote some stuff, go check out the Instagram. So Fishman's Post, uh, it's fishmans.post on Instagram. Go make sure you follow us. Keep up with what we're doing. We're going to be launching all kinds of uh, podcast episodes. Once a, once a week is our is our goal right now, uh, but maybe some additional content and some things that we have planned. Uh, finally, after all these years, talk Gary into doing some online stuff, so I'm pretty stoked about it. Uh, for people who don't know mine and Gary's relationship, I, I worked here at Fisherman's Post doing sales and had a great time, and so it's really fun to be back at this desk. Um, maybe I sold something earlier today for him. Maybe I didn't. I don't know, but it's good to be back. Uh, so go check out our Facebook. Go check out the Instagram. Like, share, follow, rate, review. Uh, this podcast uh, is going to be on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, so make sure you check that out and rate and review wherever you can. And let us know what you think. Let us know, uh, you know, hey, great job. Hey, you guys didn't do a great job. Like, what can we do better? Um, this is a part of what I love doing is, is creating podcasts, creating content. So I'm always good for feedback and, um, and just for, for Gary doing a podcast, man, I'm just proud of you, man. I'm just, I could, I could shed a tear right now. Right. I mean, <laughs> well, who says I'm an old dog? What? Like four years and here I am four years and I finally am limping into the arena and this, this was fun. I taught him, a new, I taught him a new trick. Here we go. <laughs> well, Gary, man, such a pleasure and we'll do it again. Uh, obviously every week. So you guys keep up with us and, and go to the website. We'll update all that stuff on there. So cool. Anything else? Nothing else, man. That's Thank it, you. Man. Thank F everyone. Fisherman's Post, episode one.